Redeemer family, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn them to Acts 21. Acts 21. As marvelous as pray that we are at the time in our service where we worship the Lord through paying attention to His Word. I get the privilege of reading it, and there's power there, but we all get the privilege of sitting under it and letting Jesus speak to us through it. And so I pray that it will come in power and humility and confidence and accuracy. So we'll start in Acts 21, 37, and we'll read through chapter 22, verse 29. And when Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Ethiopian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. Sir, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And there was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this very city, speaking of Jerusalem, and educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as you all are on this day. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and we came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, he came to me and standing by me, he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and what you have heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. 
When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And Jesus said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, the crowd listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that there, there he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen who is uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him with flogging withdrew from him and immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had him bound. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, uh, thank you for your word. And we pray now that you will give your servant wisdom, that will you give us uh, attentive hearts, that you will uh, allow us, Lord, to delight in your word. Your word is precious. It delights the soul that by your word, your servants are warned in obeying this word. There are great rewards. May this be true. We pray for us in Jesus name. Amen. So we're entering into a very interesting stretch in the book of Acts. Last week, uh, um, Brian preached, and at the end of that, we discovered that Paul was arrested. He went to the temple, and he was arrested. And here's, here, here's what's about to happen. According to Luke, Paul will never be free again. He's going to be in chains. And so as you read Acts 22 through 28, do so with that in the back of your mind. He is in prison, and he's being transferred from one barrack to another governor, to another governor, to King Agrippa, all the way to Rome. As a matter of fact, it's in chains that Paul is declaring the gospel today, right, in our passage to the Jewish crowd. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 23. It's going to be to the Jewish religious leaders. The chapter after that, he's going to be sent to Felix, the governor in Caesarea, and he's going to declare the gospel there. And then uh, there's going to be a new governor two years later whose name is Festus. And so for two years, Paul is going to be in prison. And then the new governor is now the governor. And Paul declares the gospel to him. And then he is sent to King Agrippa. And Paul declares the gospel to the king. And then he gets sent to Rome everything that's happening from here on out he's in chains 
And guess what? It's very redundant. A lot of what we're going to cover is going to sound like a broken record. Paul's going to go from this place to this place to this place to this place. And he's going to keep saying the same thing. This person to that person to that person. He's going to keep saying the same thing. And the temptation, right, is to skip it. I was with some friends this week, and I asked one of my friends who was preaching, who had preached your acts. I said, bro, what did you do with Acts 22 through 28? He said, I skipped it. We're not going to skip it. We're going to dig in. The question that we have to wrestle with is, why the repetition? What is Luke after? By giving us these defenses after defense. I think he wants Theophilus, the, 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 the intended audience, the person that he's writing this for, to know that it's not only appointed for you, O Theophilus, to believe in Jesus. It's appointed for you to suffer for Jesus. It's appointed for you to defend his name. It's appointed for you to testify wherever God sent you. If it's kings, testify. If it's governors, testify. If it's sailors on ships, testify. If it's religious leaders, testify. If it's crowds who want you dead, give a defense. See, I think that Luke wants us to not let the great commission become the great omission where we will not take heed to the final words of Jesus, where he says, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says, go. And the verb there, the command is to make disciples. How do we make disciples? In our going, in our teaching, in our training, in our baptizing. And Jesus says, I'm with you wherever you go. You see, we're probably not going to be like Paul. I'm probably not going to be arrested and sent on a ship to Rome, right? But I do think there is some continuity here. Think about this. Paul shares the gospel with Jews, then their religious leaders, then Festus, then Felix, these are governors, then King Agrippa and his wife, then sailors on a ship, then islanders on the island of Malta, and then Romans, right? So God is sending him to manifold people, manifold types of people, and God is sending him to manifold types of places. It starts in the temple, then he's in the barracks, then he's in Caesarea, then he's before King Agrippa, then he's on the island of Malta, then he lands in Rome. You see what Paul is doing? God is sending him multiple people, multiple people, multiple people, multiple places, multiple places, multiple places, but something stays the same, that wherever he goes and whomever he is with, he's a gracious defender of Jesus. What does it got to do with us? God has you around certain people that only you are around. You are in your own apartment or in your own home. 
you're in your own neighborhood or your own city. You're in your own gym that you work out in. I'm not in there, right? You're in your own family of origin. You went to the same high school with 163 other people that none of us in this room know, right? God is sending all of us and putting us around people and putting us in certain places. And what God wants from us, Redeemer, is the same. Declare me. Speak of my goodness. Do not omit the great commission. Now, so that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to show us this call to be gracious defenders of the faith. And then I want to dig into kind of why it's hard. And some of this is from um, books that I've been reading. It's around articles I've been reading. Uh, I want to dig into that a little bit. Then I want to talk to you about how the gospel, like I'm not trying to heap a command on you that does not first and foremost find its place in the gospel, right? So first thing, I want to look at this call to be gracious defenders of the faith. Have you ever had something so good that happens to you that you have to share it with others? Did you know 41 years ago, Georgia Bulldogs won the national championship? And a man in Kosciuszko, Mississippi, rented a sign, a gas station sign, and put the gas station sign in his front yard telling everybody in Kosciuszko, Georgia Bulldogs are national champions. Well, guess what? He did it again this week, except he rented a billboard in the middle of Ole Miss and Mississippi State and whoever people in Kosciuszko root for, this guy puts a sign up because it's good news. That's kind of what's happening in the gospel. There's a stretch of darkness in the land and Jesus shows up and he redeems people and he heals people. And what you start to see is that people put signs up. The Messiah has come. The Messiah has healed me. Now, where is it, Pastor L? Okay, John chapter four. When Jesus meets the woman at the well, she comes there and she is not a, 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 a pious woman, right? She leaves her water at the well and goes back into Samaria and tells the Samaritans all that Jesus taught her. What about John chapter 5? An invalid who couldn't walk was healed on the Sabbath. And once he got to walk, guess what he did? He told the Jews about Jesus. John chapter 9, a man born blind. And when he was healed, he told the religious leaders, I was blind. And even I can see that Jesus is the Messiah. Are you blind? What about Mark chapter 5? We were reading this together as a family, and Jesus goes to the Gerasenes, and there's this man who is being tormented with demons. Jesus casts out the demons, puts them in some pigs. The pigs go to their grave. They jump in water, and the man runs to Jesus as Jesus is about to get on a boat, and Jesus tells the man, sir, you can't come with me. You go back. And you go back and you tell everybody where you are about me. When you read the Gospels, there are people that Jesus tells to be quiet and they go talk. These people did not have to go to seminary. They did not read a book on apologetics. 
The good news was so good that they could not keep their mouths shut. And that's what's happening to Paul. When Paul opens his mouth, he says, Here, brothers and fathers, the defense that I am about to make. In chapter 23, Jesus comes to Paul and says, Take courage, do not fear them, for you will testify of me here all the way to Rome. In other words, when you read where we are in Acts 22, 23, 24, 25, all the way through 28, there is going to be a declaring, a testifying. And when you read all of Paul's ministry, it doesn't matter where he goes. He's a pastor. He's an employee. He's a church planter, but he does the work of an evangelist. Now, when you read the book of Acts, I think a case can be made that evangelism is a spiritual discipline of Paul. A spiritual discipline. What does that mean? In Donald Whitney's book, which is J.I. Packer endorses, and I love J.I. Packer, he's one of my favorite writers. But he, his theme verse is from 1 Timothy 4, 7, where Paul tells Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. He defines godliness as closeness and conformity to Jesus It's inward and outward, so how we feel and what we do. It's in our heart and our behaviors. He he writes that the disciplines are not an end in themselves, but they are a means of becoming more like Jesus. It's It's important to hear, right? When we practice these disciplines, we are not earning God's favor. Baby, you have God's favor through the gospel. He loves you. But what the disciplines do is they invite you and I to enjoy him more, to experience in him more. And so here's what Whitney does. He lays out a list of things that you and I would all say, amen, pastor. Bible intake. If Jesus meditated on the word, and grew in wisdom and stature and favor, do we think we're going to be conformed to him without the word? So Bible intake is a discipline. Prayer, communing with the Father, getting up before the disciples get up and want you to go do stuff, but just being and basking in the presence of the Father. And then teaching the disciples how to pray. So there's a a private element where I do this on my own, but I also do it in the company of the saints. It's the same thing with Bible reading. Please do not let the only time you read the Bible happen in the context of of this. That it's food for us. It's a delight for us outside of what we do publicly. But he goes on to list worship and service and fasting and silence, like actually being silent and solitude and stewardship. These are all spiritual disciplines. And guess what he puts in the list? Evangelism. That there is a closeness to and conformity to Jesus in heart and behavior in experience, not only as we read the Bible and as we fast and as we pray, but he says, as you share your faith, 
you looking like Jesus, girl. You looking like Jesus, young man. You're feeling like Jesus, sir. I think he's trying to get us to see what, what, what Luke wants us to see as opposed to one-off conversations that we have with a select group of people, as opposed to this dichotomy we have between what is sacred and what is secular, and when I'm going to put on my spiritual hat and when I'm going to take it off, that, that what Acts is doing, what Luke is doing, is all of life, all people, all relationship, all places, we are to be ready and willing to testify to the beauty of Jesus. Abraham says that we're blessed to be a blessing. That's what God told him. So I just want to convince you that th this is there. I think this is what's happening in Acts. There's a call upon us all. Second thing, look, y'all, it's difficult. This is so difficult to do this. Now, why? A lot of reasons. I'm going to give you some. But I'm, I'm pretty certain so when I was in seminary, one of my seminary professors would say, if you want to humble a person, ask him about their prayer life. Right? Whitney would say that next to prayer, evangelism is probably one of the things that we neglect the most. We'll go to church. We'll pay our tithes. We'll give generously. We'll go to Sunday school. We'll serve. We'll work in the nursery. But when you start to talk about defending my faith to my boss and going to my neighbor's house or inviting them to mine to talk about Jesus, that's kind of where we get a little anxious and fidgety. Now, this isn't just sort of in theory. Uh, the Barner Group did a study, and this is a 25-year study going back 25 years. And here is what they discovered. That 25 years ago, all right, let me, let me get, make sure I quote it the right way. 25 years ago, that 10% uh, of Christians believe that it was the job of the church to evangelize. 90% felt like, no, that responsibility is upon me as a member. 25 years ago. You want to know what the stats are today? Now that number's jumped to 30. 30% of Christians, where it used to be 10%, now 30% of Christians say, yeah, that's for the church. So 70% as opposed to the 90%, right? So you, th th that's trending in the wrong direction. So why? I think it's because the culture is changing. The church culture is changing around us. We're actually saying with our actions and our inability to have these conversations with our neighbors that we actually think it's for the paid folks to do. It's for the seminary folks to do. It's for the super holy person. They're called to share their faith. 25 years ago, that was not the case. So I think that's what makes it hard. Church culture has changed. And this isn't what you see in Acts. In Acts chapter 11, we're listed the apostles and all these famous people. And then you get this little insert that it was these ordinary lay leaders who shared the good news. So one is just the changing culture. Two is the fear of man. 
we become afraid to talk about Jesus because it might cost us. If you're a teenager, you may be called the religious girl, right? If you're communicating the gospel in your workplace, you're the holy roller. And now you're on the, on the end of jokes upon jokes upon jokes. You might experience ostracism or like the apostle Paul, when Paul begins to proclaim the good news, they beat him and put him in chains. Now, why? Because when you proclaim the good news, you and I will be talking and putting our fingers on the idols that don't die easily in the hearts of people. And they're tracking with Paul while he's talking about being a Jew, growing up in Jerusalem, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, being zealous for the law. They're with him. Amen. They're in the amen corner. But the moment he says that God has a heart for the Gentiles, that's when like, get rid of this fool. Get him out of here. That may it not be so. Get him off the face of the earth. Why? Why there? It's because they were racist. It's because they thought they were special. It's because they did not think that God's sovereign grace should go to the ends of the earth. They felt like if they are going to be saved, then those Gentile people, those people who eat that stuff we don't eat and wear what we don't wear and believe what we don't believe, they got to become like us. They got to come under circumcision. And God says, no, they don't. They must. They are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And so the moment Paul starts to meddle, their idols start to surface, their anger starts to surface, and they don't want him alive. That's the danger, beloved. When you are a witness to Jesus, you will be stepping on the idols of this world, and people don't like their idols messed with. That's the reason why we're afraid. Another reason is the lack of training. And this one is not on the lay people. This is on the church. Back in 1993, 77% of people interviewed felt like their church did a great job at teaching them to share their faith. You want to know where that number is now? It's dropped 20%, 57%. And so, fifth, so that means 43% of Christians don't feel equipped. And you know what? That's not on you. That's on me. And that's on your leaders. That's on those of us who have been given the gift and the training to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, and God gave to the church apostles. He gave them prophets. He gave them shepherds and teachers and evangelists so that they would in turn equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And so if the saints don't feel equipped, have not been equipped, that's on us. Right? Another reason is in our reflection quote. I think we're just too busy, saints. We got kids to chase and practices to go to and deals to make and businesses to run and papers to write and groceries to get and gyms to go to and hobbies to have and hunting to go get, right? We, we got stuff to do. 
And here's what Stephen Covey says. He, he was the first that I know who, who, who this image of, of a bucket, right, which stands for time, and then large rocks, medium-sized rocks, small rocks, and sand. And you got a limited amount of life, beloved. You got a limited amount of time in a day. And if you want to put all this stuff that you need to do inside of this bucket, here's where we go wrong. If you put the sand, and, and, and so the corresponding size of the debris that goes in the bucket is correlated to how important something is. And so here's the thing. The sand would be trivial stuff, stuff that will not matter in eternity. But here's what we do. We put the trivial stuff in the bucket first and we scroll on Instagram and we scroll on Facebook and we read this and we go do this. And then the big stuff, the weighty, the eternal stuff, we put that in last. But guess what? Our time is already full. And so the big things that should go in there, they're forced on the side. And what the Bible is calling us to do is to put the big things in first. Make disciples. That's first. Getting some sleep. That's first. Having a job. That's first, right? And then you put the medium-sized stuff in there. And then the small stuff. And when our lives are filled with that, you got room to put some sand in there. But maybe not as much sand as you thought you had. But here's what we do. We put the small stuff in first. And we wonder why we don't have time to talk about Messiah. And I'm guilty too. Fifth, our own reputations with people we are proximate to. Can I confess something? Sometimes when I stand before you, I feel like there is a blinking sign over my head that says imposter. When I was growing up, there was a movie called I Know What You Did Last Summer. And these kids did something they shouldn't have done, and they thought nobody saw them. But somebody saw them. And what they did kind of tracked them down. Look, sometimes I feel that. I know what I did last week. I know what I didn't do last month. And when I stand before you, I'm ashamed of myself. And what Satan would want me to do is to be silent and to not proclaim the good news. And I'd imagine if somebody followed you around to where you work, you shouldn't have cursed them out on the phone, but you did. You shouldn't have got spotty by the mouth with that person, but you did. You shouldn't have had shady business practices, but you did. You should have create, uh, treated that employee with dignity, but you didn't. You should have, right? You should have, and you didn't. And here's what happens. The very people that see us at our worst are the ones that we want to reach for the gospel. And what Satan will do is you're an imposter. Surely you can't say nothing to them about Jesus. You don't even live it, right? Isn't that how that works? And it paralyzes us. It makes us not want to speak the good news. Another reason it's hard is because of the reputation of the church and society. It makes it difficult for the world to trust you. 
Sam Chan has a great book that we're going to do an evangelism class, and it's going to be one of the readings. But it's how to talk about Jesus without being that guy. That's the name of the book. And here's what he writes. Evangelicals, their vocal and public affiliation with politics has caused the church to be seen as a part of the problem in our country. That ought to hurt your heart when non-believers look at people with signs that say Jesus saves as people die on the Capitol with the intent on overthrowing the government. And the sign is Jesus saves. Jesus ain't got nothing to do with that. His kingdom is of not of this world. When given the chance to overthrow the government, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and went to a cross and laid down his life. He trusted that kings come and kings go, but his kingdom alone endures forever. When we hitch our wagon to the right or to the left, Sensible people do not want our God. So Paul says, on account of you, the name of God is blasphemed among Gentiles. Y'all take that in. We can't run away from that. We have to care, and I mean we have to care about who Christians attach themselves to and what causes. We have to, and the cause of Christ has to trump any party, any affiliation. Here's what you learn about Paul. If you were to read any of the other epistles, guess what you will never know about Paul? you would never even know he was a Roman citizen. Ever. You want to know the only time he pulls this card out and gets in the fray? The only time he does it is in Acts. And the only time he does it in Acts right here, beloved, it's not because Paul is not ready to die. Last week when Brian preached, what did Paul say? He says, y'all are breaking my heart. Do you not know that I'm not only ready to suffer for Jesus? I'm ready to go and die. Paul had already been beaten in Philippi. He'd already been beaten right here. He already knew that he was going to die. So why then does he pull out his Roman citizenship card? You know why? So he can get five more chances to preach the gospel. His identity as a citizen of Jesus, as a citizen of heaven, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, that is over and above any other alliance, any other allegiance. And he only pulls this card to serve this so it makes it hard when we get enmeshed and entangled. It's hard. It's hard for the sensible middle. It's hard for people 
wanting ethics. It's hard for people wanting human dignity. It's hard for people to see God, right, when we're clouded. And it makes it hard. These are, this is all why it's hard. I just want to dig into it a little. Last point. How do we then work through this? What do we do with the guilt? What do we do with our fearfulness? What do we do with our unwillingness to do this? How can we become those who graciously defend the cause of Jesus to anyone and everywhere Jesus has us? How can that happen? It's the gospel. The gospel transforms us. The very good news that we're to speak to others is the very good news that has to be precious to us. What does the gospel do with our, and I'm putting our in here, our disobedience and the shame that comes from it? Dane Orland has written a book, Gentle and Lowly, and here's what he writes. He says, when you come to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness, he does not get flustered or frustrated. It's what he came for. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide you with a limitless supply of mercy and grace. To put it the other way around, when we hold back, lurking in the shadows, fearful and failing, we miss out not only on our increased comfort, but on Christ's increased comfort. He lives to give you grace. He lives to pardon your guilt. He lives to remove your shame. Now, why do I start there? Because here is what Dane is saying that I think is relevant to this command to be defenders of the good news. Most of us would agree that we don't. God calls us to make disciples, and we make a lot of things. We make money, and we make children, and we make a name for ourselves, and we make friends, and we make time to hobby, and we don't make disciples. And if your knee-jerk reaction right now is to be mad at me because I'm bringing it up, and not, Lord, I'm wrong. I have not prioritized your kingdom. If your knee-jerk reaction is to be offended and not broken over your inability, you're missing out on this beautiful invitation to come to Jesus and to say, Jesus, you got me. Your word has outed me. This is a blind spot, and I have not made this a priority. And you know what Jesus says to people who come to him like that? He says, come on. I delight to give you grace. I'm here to give you mercy. I'm here to pardon your guilt and shame. Get up. You're forgiven. You're pardoned. And this is in the sermon. This is in Paul's defense when he goes to Ananias. Ananias says, Paul, get up, be baptized, call upon Jesus, and your sins will be forgiven. 
And so in the next chapter, when Paul stands up and says, I stand before God with a clear conscience, buddy, how you got a clear conscience and you just admitted to murdering people? How are you pardoned and you just admitted to killing Christians? Because someone pardoned you. Someone stood in your place and his name is Jesus. And there is no condemnation for those in Christ. And so if your guilt and shame of being disobedient is riding you, you want to know where you send it? You send it back to the cross. And you say, there, from Emmanuel's vein, flows blood that has cleansed me from all my guilt and shame. That's where you go. That's how the gospel deals with our disobedience. And it hurts Jesus when we don't come to him that way. We rob him of giving us what he wants to give you. And that's mercy and pardon. What do you do? What what does the gospel do with our unhealthy emotions? Like this fear of man and this unrighteous anger. Look, I think a, a, a comparison is happening in this passage. Paul says, hey, I'm a Jew just like y'all. Y'all are Jews, right? He says, I was raised in the law just like y'all. As a matter of fact, in the passage, he says, I was zealous for the law just like you. So up until that point in his sermon, what is he trying to say? He's trying to say that we're the same. We're cut from the same cloth. But then there is a divide that happens. They want him dead. You know what Paul wants? He wants them to have life. He has unceasing anguish in his heart for them that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, might be saved, that he himself will be cut off if it means that those who want to kill him are in. Wait a minute. This is night and day difference. They want him dead. He wants them alive. They want to kill him. He wants to lay down his life if it means that they're saved. What in the world has removed the fear of man? What in the world has given him a love for those trying to kill him? It's the gospel. It's the same thing Jesus says. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I have weeped over you. How like a mother hen, I have longed to gather you under my wings. It's the words of Jesus. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And what you see happening in, in Paul is the same posture. He doesn't fear man. He doesn't hate his enemies. He fears God and he loves them. The gospel does that. The gospel doesn't just affect His emotional life, but his outward deeds. Pay attention to Paul. He wants to speak to the people. He says, please, Mr. Centurion, sir, I beg you, can I have a word? I know they want to beat me and stomp me out, but I beg you, can I have a word? 
Are you this assassin? No, I'm just a Jew. But can I have a word? Can I speak to the people? Paul raises his hand. The people get silent. And then Paul starts to give his defense using words in the Hebrew language. He is doing everything he can to put the words of God upon their ears. Now, why? 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 Why words? All right. So I was in Tucson this week. And I did something that I don't do. Like, I'm not the guy who will take a hike just to take a hike. I'll walk. It got to be for exercise or I need to be going somewhere. But like to walk up a mountain and to dodge cacti, right? Like, that's, that's just not me. And these guys I'm on the retreat with, they said, Pastor, come on, come on, come with us. And so we literally walk up the mountain and you see bobcat and foxes and a turtle, right? <laughs> and jumping cactuses and, and water. I'm telling y'all, I'm serious. And water and the sunset and, and citrus trees. And my devotion that day or, or a few days prior have been Psalm 148, where the psalmist says, praise the Lord, sun and moon and waters and mountains and hills and trees. And then he tells us why, why, why praise the Lord creation? For he commanded you and you were created. And there on the mountain, basking in the beauty around me, the Holy Spirit said to me, all of this, I did with words. I spoke those mountains into being. I spoke those cacti into being. I spoke that sun which runs on this circuit into being. I spoke these hills into being. And when you are redeemed, do you know what God does? God allows us and invites us to see the beauty of mere words. We know, don't we, that words can destroy a forest. We know that life and death is in the power of the tongue. We know that every idle word will be judged. Well, how do you know this? You know this because you are new creation. But when you are new creation through the gospel, guess what? You don't need to do a miracle. What Paul did right here, just let me give him words. Because I know words are the, the, the reason we have galaxies. And here's the thing. Did you know that when you and I open our mouths to talk about the gospel of Jesus, you can create something through the grace of God and by the Holy Spirit working through your words, you create something more beautiful than the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen. When a person turns from darkness into light, that's new creation. When a person finds redemption, that's more beautiful than anything you've seen. When a person repents and turns to Jesus, constellations don't match up with that. You only get this through the gospel. The gospel tells you that training is important, 
But it's not necessary. Paul's message is very simple. He tells them who he was in verses 1 through 5. Yeah, I was a sinner. I killed Christians. That's who I was, says Paul. He tells them who intervened. Verses 6 through 9, God showed up. I wasn't looking for God. I was on my way to Damascus to arrest more Christians and to put them in jail and kill them more. And God showed up out of nowhere and stopped me in my tracks. He is sovereign. He is Lord over creation. Well, what did God do? He took me to the house of Ananias and Ananias had me baptized and I confessed upon the name of Jesus and all of my sins were blotted out. Do you know that the gospel is simple enough that kids can understand it and it's more profound enough that elephants can drown in it. The message of the gospel is simple. So as you think about these conversations, just be honest with people. Who were you? Where did God show up? When did he meet you? And what did he do? We don't have to make this harder than Paul does in our passage. We can, by the grace of God, be empowered to become gracious defenders of Jesus. To whomever and to wherever. There's an African proverb. You get a few people in a small place who do small things, and you can change a large world. That's true with evangelism. As we go in our small little nooks and crannies and proclaim the small, the good news to regular people, God might be pleased to change the world. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We thank you that all of our guilt and our shame has been taken care of in the cross. We thank you that you have displaced our fear of man with the love of man and a fear of God. We thank you, Lord, for the simple message of the gospel, that we're sinners, that God intervened, that Jesus has redeemed us by becoming a curse for us, and he offers forgiveness to those whom have been given to him before the foundation of the world. Father, help us to be a people that do not make the great commission the great omission. Train us and build us up by your spirit to make us those who would declare the excellencies of the one who has called us from darkness into his marvelous light. So help us, Jesus, we pray. Amen.